The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What I'm asking for is that this discipline, that this framework takes on board some better, more sophisticated degree of self-reflection. If the critique of my piece is, this is overly harsh on people who are basically in completely novel territory trying their best, yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 2nd, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem. And we're going to be talking about disinformation. What else? It's everywhere. It's ruining society. It's the subject of endless academic articles, news reports, opinion columns, and, well, podcasts. Welcome to what BuzzFeed news reporter Joe Bernstein has termed big disinformation. In a provocative essay in the September issue of Harper's Magazine, he argues that anxiety over bad information has become a cultural juggernaut that draws in far more attention and funding than the problem really merits, and that the intellectual foundations of that juggernaut are, to a large extent, built on sand. On today's episode, Joe joined Evelyn Duak and myself to discuss his article— and the response to it among researchers and reporters who work in the field. He walked us through his argument and what it feels like to be unexpectedly cited by Facebook PR. What led him to essentially drop a bomb into an entire discipline? What does his critique mean for how we think about the role of platforms in American society right now? And is he right? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 2nd. The Disinformation Industrial Complex. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. There's actually two stories we want to talk to you about today. There is the story you wrote for Harper's, which is called Bad News and its Argument. And then there's kind of the the story about the story. It created quite a stir online. You even had the questionable privilege of being tweeted out by a spokesman for Facebook. Uh, But before we get meta, we wanted to actually start with what you wrote. So just walk us through what was your argument in the Harper's piece and what motivated you to write it? Sure. Um, Evelyn, Quinta, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It's a a real privilege to sort of talk about this with two people who are as like invested and knowledgeable as you and who've been thinking about this stuff uh, in depth and, you know, in sort of the nitty gritty for just as long as I have. And and I think even in more depth in terms of the public policy aspect of it. 
if I could back up a little bit, I have reported at BuzzFeed News for, you know, sort of better part of a decade, I guess, six, six years now, broadly speaking on like controversial content online, more generally how social platforms sort of shape and reshape various aspects of American life. One of the things I saw over the Trump years, and, and everyone saw this, is a dominant framing for the way social platforms affect American life in terms of the term of art, disinformation. Uh, and while I say term of art, but it's a complicated word because it has a scientific connotation and yet it's used, as I get into in this piece, unscientifically, you know, not consistently. Anyway, I had a lot of, frankly, questions about this framing um, that I didn't necessarily have the time, intellectual bandwidth, or support isn't right, but maybe the atmosphere wasn't right during the Trump years to think through some of these questions. I was fortunate enough to do a Neiman Fellowship this past year where I took some wonderful classes. Unfortunately, I did not get a chance to link up with Evelyn. I took one class in particular um, with um, the science and technology studies pioneer, Sheila Jasanoff, which really kind of blew my mind and opened my thinking and helped me theorize some of the some of the difficulties I had with the disinformation frame. And from there, I kind of spent some time outlining what my problems were, how this discourse functions more broadly than just as like, there's some bad stuff on the internet. It may be, it's probably causing bad effects and the platforms need to cut down on it. I, I thought there was a much bigger story there about politics, about social control, and about advertising specifically. And um, I really wanted to write something kind of big and sweeping about that. At the same time, as I, as I was having these thoughts, I did notice people who think about these things were on a similar track or, or tra their thinking was tracking in a similar way. Notably, I saw Evelyn's piece. It looks like it's from, it's from June, which is hard. It, it feels like I've been thinking, of, thinking with this piece for a long time. About more about content moderation, how content moderation is not always the solution, which should seem obvious, and yet it didn't for like a long time. Uh, there was kind of a, a number of different people thinking about the idea of influence online, why people do things when they're exposed to information, and I drew on a lot of that stuff when I was writing this. And most specifically, um, there's a book that came out last year by he's now the general counsel at Substack, Tim Wong called Some Prime Attention Crisis, which is essentially about how the online advertising ecosystem is a house of cards. And that as like a persuasive framework, it's severely lacking. Um, and so I had all these sort of different threads running in my own head. And it led to this piece that I published uh, a couple of weeks ago, the argument of which is, if I could state it briefly, the way we talk about disinformation has become much too sweeping and much too deterministic. That is, we place, I believe, too much of an emphasis on the sort of overriding power of information on social platforms to influence people to do certain things. And what I think that draws on that, that sort of sense is actually a story about advertising that's very beneficial ultimately to the platforms that host disinformation because, and we can get, we get way deeper into this, but it's their overriding sort of ultimate business interest to convince 
people with money that they can persuade people of anything. And so I wanted to, in this piece, to argue that there's sort of an ironic dialectic happening where this argument about disinformation actually in some ways supports the platforms. And that's not the only way it supports the platforms, but that's the way I talk about the most in the piece. Well, very nice work trying to butter us up, Joe. I'm now rapidly throwing out all of our difficult, hard-hitting questions. Um, That was very, very kind. So we definitely want to get into everything you just said. But before we do, as I read it, there were actually two major dynamics, or this one builds on the one that you just were talking about, about the way that the word disinformation has been used and thrown around in an unscientific manner. But sort of building on that, I think one of the key dynamics that you critique as well is the industry that you call big disinfo. Um, I've been calling the disinformation industrial complex because it's not just platforms necessarily that this kind of framing has benefited. And so I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for our listeners too, before we get into it. Who do you see as making up that industry and what are their incentive structures? Sure. So um, the first thing I want to say is that that term is cheeky, uh, and I meant it to be a little cheeky. You could argue that my work on online radicalization has been part of the big, you know, disinformation industrial complex. Broadly speaking, what I'm talking about in the piece are knowledge workers. So journalists, academics, particularly academics around media facts, disinformation studies, people at think tanks, you know, I actually sort of talk about this in the piece, their incentives are are in some ways sort of very clear professional incentives. So like academics who want to study, you know, who want to get funding for their projects. Well, if they're studying a really hot topic like disinformation, I think they're more likely to get funded. That's something I've heard from a lot of people in disinformation studies. The think tanks, you know, want to study quantifiable policy problems. And of course, the sort of disinformation framework is something that is eminently quantifiable. Whether that's valid or not is a different question. And journalists, and this is something I can speak to, especially our sort of the coin of our realm is impact. And there is like no easier impact story. And this is not to, to denigrate anyone's work, but the platforms, I mean, Evelyn, as you know, they're just like so incompetent at making and enforcing rules consistently that it's it's like trivial to to create impact because you can you can just search Twitter. I mean, you can go anywhere online and find the platforms violating their own speech rules. Yeah, it's fantastic. They're they're framed as like these all powerful overlords, and they're like bumbling toddlers in, in actual fact. <laughs> right, because they're dealing with huge pro. I mean, you know, yes, that is true. But also, so you have you have these professional incentive loops, and then I think more broadly speaking. There's a, and we can get deeper into this, but there's a question of appearances, which is the institutions, the sort of big disinfo institutions, which are big traditional media outlets, big uh, think tanks, you know, places like Harvard, where I just spent the year, seem to be the people who are most invested in the disinformation framework. And that, even from the level of optics, is like, wait, what's going on? Like, like, why are the people who are who have sort of maybe lost some control over the dissemination of knowledge, why are these the people who are most invested in creating this new framework? Now, there's academics who will make a very, like, radical argument about, you know, the center of American politics, you know, attempting to sort of reclaim lost territory. I don't want, I don't go that far in the piece. I mean, 
I think disinformation is a, is a serious, serious problem, but it is worth thinking about. And, and I think broadly, like that appearance is in itself a problem. So you've been very polite about, you know, not being too critical about people's work so far, but the piece is pretty caustic. I mean, you you said it was cheeky. I would say it was kind of a bold move. You you mock people who kind of glibly refer to the algorithm. You argue that the narrative around bad information boils down to, quote, good guys and bad guys. It's pretty, you know, attention grabbing. And I was curious what drove that choice. Was it kind of trying to make this argument interesting to a broader public who might otherwise not be down for a sort of deep dive into academic funding structures and advertising dynamics? Or were you aiming to disrupt the debate that you're critiquing? I guess another way to put this is, you know, who was the audience you had in mind? And how did you think about the connection between the tone you were taking and that Mm -hmm. audience? I had strong feelings. I don't want to say that I didn't. And those came out in the piece. I did want to provoke uh, with this piece because I see so many like intensely smart and intensely um, talented people who have like, like maybe not thought through in a holistic way, how this world functions, but it's a piece of journalism. And, And like to that extent, and it's an argued piece of journalism. And I'd rather read something that makes a strong case as strongly as possible than something that kind of, Hemson Hawes or qualifies itself a lot. That's my own preference as a writer. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wanted to like cause a conversation to happen. And like, you know, I, I think in some ways that was borne out. Like Daniel, there was a good thread by um, Daniel. Is his last name pronounced Christ or Chris? He had a good thread about basically like, you know, there's people in this world who have been studying the problems with this framing and like, you know, maybe it took a a you know ink stained wretch to kind but but to my own credit someone who has like thought about this a fair amount to sort of get people talking and thinking also i think the time was right i mean i don't necessarily think this piece would have worked if trump had won re-election for example and evelyn you talk about that in your content moderation piece about how politics are just i'm actually going to quote from it if you don't mind you say, "Oh gosh, this is way too much, Joe." <laughs> no, 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 because it's because I wish I'd put. I wish I didn't put this in the piece because I thought people would be too angry about it. But you say it. You say, "Well, thank you for protecting me." Then <laughs> Trump, Trump social media, Trump social media accounts in the election are in the rearview mirror, which means content moderation is no longer the constant A one story. Perhaps that proves the actual source of much of the angst was politics, not platforms. And like, let's acknowledge that. Like, let's acknowledge that that drove a lot of the conversation. It's, again, not to say that propaganda, lies, disinformation, whatever you want to call them on on platforms are not enormous, like, epochal problem, but let's also acknowledge the politics of it. So that was part of it, too. Certainly, I was trying to write something forceful. Whether or not it was too caustic, I mean, you know, I deliberately didn't name anyone because I think it's a systemic or sort of a framework problem rather than a problem of, like, people's individual work although I could point to individual work that I do point to some, but it's not about any one person. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I do completely agree about the sort of the political underlying political aspect, which both you and Evelyn have, have written about. And I, I do think that 
it is notable that like a lot of the problems that people sort of suddenly discovered about the internet after the 2016 election have been around for as long as the internet has been around, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of the complaints that people have were, you know, oh my God, people are being horrible to women and people of color online, yep. which is not new. And yet somehow it took it being framed as, I would argue, not just a political problem, but also a national security problem for this yep. to to kind of be framed as an issue that everybody should care about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So I wanted to ask you about one of the key pieces of pushback that I saw to your piece, which was sort of that you you offered no solutions. You kind of skewer <laughs> this entire field and the discourse, and yet it's not really clear what the path forward is. You know, it's, I completely agree that, you know, as you write, the problem is not new. It's exaggerated by parties on every side because it suits their interests in one way or another. There are sort of fundamental epistemological questions that remain unanswered that sort of mean that the whole disinformation field is to some extent built on sand. But like, is your answer then that, you know, nothing should be done? Like, even if we are overreacting, and even if we've overreacted in human history at the eventing of, you know, the printing press or the telegraph or television, isn't it still worth, you know, striving for a better public sphere and a healthier public discourse? Yes, absolutely. It is. It's a very long, st- this is like the journal, like the long form journalists, like, worst and like lowliest defense. It is a very long story. And if I started getting into like my sort of ideas about how to solve this problem, I think, well, I don't know if Harper's sort of publish it, but it's always, it's always the editor. Am I right? They always cut that out. Everything you don't like about the piece is the editor's fault. Yes, that is true. Let me maybe point to history a little bit. And this is a history that the brilliant person who happens to be a friend of mine, Nota Bene, uh, Moira Weigel turned me on to the history of communication studies and propaganda studies. And I talk about this a little bit in the piece. After World War I, there was a, a pretty keen academic and journalistic interest in propaganda. And it was a kind of a progressive and a, and a, a kind of case-based focus. That is to say, it thought about messages being disseminated in public and strove to connect those messages with big, powerful funding sources who pushed these messages. And it was sort of openly political. It didn't make big sweeping claims about the nature of information. And it was a very popular sort of thriving field for for the sort of interwar years. Then there's a rival school called communication studies that, that comes up and sort of, and this dovetails with the stuff I'm talking about, about the kind of connections between the advertising industry and lab science, but it sort of makes these broad claims. And this comes up along with the sort of advent of mass market television that we can make very sort of sweeping scientific claims about the effects of messages on people. We have people sort of on the top calling balls and strikes who can make decisions that will like completely shape society in in ways that we can evaluate scientifically. And if I have a solution, and I think this is probably vague, I would like to see a focus specifically on individual, like like an investigative focus on individual disinformative propaganda, whatever you want to call them, campaigns that stick to facts, establish facts about who is pushing what. And here, transparency is obviously very important. The platform's transparency, I mean, rather than sort of broad, alarmist, 
kind of overarching solutions based on like content moderation policy. That's kind of the, the best I can do. And I, I'm sorry if that's vague, but I, it makes me more comfortable to think about, and this is also maybe my bent as a journalist, but it makes me more comfortable to think about investigations than like someone sort of bestriding the social platform infrastructure saying like what is and is not acceptable to publish. That's really, really interesting. There's so much there that I want to dig into. But I think before we do that, I think we still need to go back to the point that you raised early on, which is the epistemological issues here um, and the idea that the, the basic definitions in this field, mis and disinformation, are essentially undefined and undefinable. So you say, quote, despite its prominence in the media. So now we're just quoting each other at each other. This is a, a total love fest, this podcast. Despite its prominence in the media, the study of disinformation is still in the process of answering definitional questions. It hasn't begun to reckon with some basic epistemological issues. Um, in their crudest use, the terms are simply jargon for things I disagree with. And I really, really, really want to agree with that a lot of the time in the broader debate. I think when it comes mm. to politicians and the Twitterati in particular, and yes, mm-hmm. certain parts of the media, um, it's, it's very true and it's definitely true in parts of academia. A lot of definitions sound really great in theory, um, but then mm-hmm. you go to operationalize them and they just don't provide much guidance. Right. Like I try and yeah. think of the Facebook policy person sitting there trying to apply these definitions that academics put out and just not having any guidance when the rubber hits the road. So, you know, we're talking about someone's post about their experience with a vaccine and it's completely unverifiable. And, you know, a, a, another thing, uh, we're going to come back to this story because it becomes relevant to the, the Facebook spokesperson cameo that you made, um, but whether there's an ongoing investigation into vaccine side effects that found out that it was the death was unrelated. But something I feel a lot of pressure about whenever I make this argument about the lack of definitions of dis and, and misinformation is this idea that, oh, but surely you can't be a free speech absolutist. Like, do you want people to be drinking bleach, you monster? Like, you can't sort of say just because we can't define them, we should just throw up our hands. Um, surely that's not what you're arguing. And so I'm wondering if, if you feel that pressure at all and whether, you know, what your answer is to this definitional issue that doesn't end up with saying, well, don't take down any false stuff that I'm sure was in your piece before the editor cut it. Right. Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky balance. I'm not a free, I'm not like a total, I'm not a, you know, complete civil libertarian in that sense. But what I will say is, um, yes, the balance is tricky. Facebook, and I think you may have written about this, Facebook is not going to be any better than the sources of authority themselves. And so if the CDC itself is issuing confusing and contradictory guidance, which it has, and the FDA is slow to certify or approve the vaccines, which it has been, I actually think it's, you know, Facebook, the bigger it's gotten, the more it it is in this kind of ironic back and forth with big authoritative uh, accrediting sources of knowledge where it actually needs their, it needs them to do their jobs. And like Facebook is not going to be any better than those institutions. Now that's a a separate question from should people be allowed to post on Facebook that like mainlining horse medicine is going to prevent, you know, or treat COVID. My answer to that is, Misinformation and disinformation 
you know, lies, propaganda, our problems. And Facebook is completely within its rights to deal with them basically however it wants to. And those are the values of the company Facebook. Uh, and that's why reporting on this stuff is important. I'm not making the case that it's not important. I am making the case that you can't have a single top-down approach to this stuff when the top-down authorities themselves are, are going to change their guidance over time, are imperfect, are themselves political. And I hope people, and I trust people, can see that distinction. So another really, really interesting point that you make in the piece is this particular quote, which I'm just going to read in full and I would love to draw you out on. Um, So you write, an even more vexing issue for the disinformation field is the supposedly objective stance media researchers and journalists take toward the information ecosystem to which they themselves belong. Somewhat amazingly, this attempt has taken place alongside an agonizing and overdue questioning within the media of the harm done by unexamined professional standards of objectivity. There's a lot going on there. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. And this is like definitely aimed more squarely at the media sort of side of it. You know, the big story of media over the past 15 years has been the loss of authority of traditional gatekeepers, although some of them, a a very select few, still have an enormous amount of authority. And for, in many cases, the better outside perspectives that were completely ignored or ridiculed for years in the mainstream media being brought in too slowly, but, but being brought in. And what astounded me for a long time during the Trump years, is that these two discussions, that is the discussion about the problems of a lack of gatekeepers or the death of gatekeepers, and frankly, the harms that the gatekeepers had done for a very long time had never been brought into conversation with each other. Or if they were, it was in a, and you know, I, I probably didn't treat this, I think like you said, there's a, that's a mouthful. And I, I wanted to do that, or at least get people thinking a little bit about, well, I mean, the story about the death of gatekeepers before Trump in many ways was a was a positive. I mean, it, it had a positive framing, which is look at the Internet. It's great. It's giving everyone a voice. And then during the tech clash, it was look at the Internet. It's horrible. It's giving everyone a voice. And so I think we have to integrate the benefits and the costs. And that's not to say that, again, that Facebook and YouTube and these platforms are not deeply, deeply powerful and harmful and playing a role in shaping and reshaping who gets to sort of create the image, the public image of America, but that let's not pretend things were great before. And that's why I start the piece as I do by talking about all the people who were excluded by the mainstream media uh, in the sort of glory days of the big three networks. That includes both like part of America that is not uh, white, straight men between the ages of like 18 and 49, but it also included like lots of like really, really rabid extremists. What we would probably now, they, they would be Trump voters who had their own media ecosystem. They were like rabid right-wing radio preachers and people just didn't know about them. So they didn't talk about them. So this gets into a broader debate about whether the internet is producing things or whether it's a mirror on society. I think the answer is, of course, it's both. And those things have a, have a interplay. But because the politics to a certain degree have changed since 2016 to 2020, 
I would love to see a sort of cooler headed discussion that does integrate the benefits and the, and the harms of that kind of death of gatekeepers question. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, just to, to sort of rephrase that, am I right in saying that you're kind of saying, on the one hand, with the sort of reckoning in mainstream media about the fact that people running these organizations come from a very specific slice of society and that their objectivity is not objective is at the same time cutting against this trend toward valorizing the objectivity of journalists and determining what is and isn't true. Yeah, that's accurate. So I think one thing that I thought was really interesting about this is how this squares with, I don't know if there's really a a name for the trend. I know Charlie Wurzel wrote a piece in BuzzFeed a while ago calling them blue detectives, but people who sort of pop up on Twitter, largely anti-Trump, though not exclusively, and sort of position themselves as what they often call citizen journalists and sort of are trying to piece apart news stories that are complicated or that they think there's more to or sort of tell people what you're saying is disinformation, try to sort of position themselves as like grassroots keepers of the truth, I guess you could Mm -hmm. say. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I find super interesting about that is on the one hand, I think it definitely comes out of that same kind of cultural anxiety over who determines what's true and what's false and has that completely fallen apart that you identify very accurately in the piece. But on the other hand, it's enabled by the same kind of sort of flattening of platforms and the absence of gatekeepers that causes that anxiety in the first place. And a lot of these people are sort of saying, you know, I don't need to be affiliated with BuzzFeed or the New York Times to be a journalist and to be someone who can pop up and say, well, actually, Trump didn't say this. And I think that sometimes that work is useful. Sometimes it overshoots. Charlie's piece was about how it overshoots and often, you know, Mm -hmm. tends up to make connections that aren't really there. But I'm Uh curious how you think about that in connection with the dynamics that you describe in the piece. That's a really interesting question. I I hadn't thought about those people, although, of course, Charlie is a friend and former coworker, and that was a great story. I mean, I was on the Occupy Democrats Twitter page the other day. And then I was just doing some Googling about Occupy Democrats. And like, they are as unreliable a source as like, the most kind of like, encephalitic right wing, social media sort of aggregator slash Breitbarty, like, red detective type type people. So like, you're certainly right that those people are out there and that they are kind of running amok in a in a similar way, although a way that doesn't sort of offend the sensibilities of 
I mean, also, let's be, I'm not going to equiv- I'm not going to make the sides equivocal. Like the, they, I think have a much stronger attachment to democracy than, than the right in terms of like their, their existence as a response to this anxiety and the fact that there, there are not these sort of like central certified, like truth telling authorities as much anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think that's accurate. And I think part of the work of a journalist is going to be oh, to be aware of people who do this, who like, I'm thinking of some, some specific people who were in my DMS when I was at Buzzfeed and I'm starting back next week. That's a plug who will send me like, did you ever notice this, 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 and this, and the kind of like true detective, like, you know, piece like pegs on a, on a corkboard way. The job of a journalist is going to be to like, know that sometimes those people will point out good valid connections and then like contextualize that information and like make it not insane. So like, I guess my response to that, I haven't thought about them in kind of a broader, like sort of a broader thematic way, but in terms of like what you can do with those people is like understand that they have, they have a valuable resource, which is time and energy. And like to a certain extent, maybe one of the jobs of journalists now is to like find in these crazy claims seeds of truth and and report them, which is always how sourcing has worked to a certain extent. So one stakeholder that you, I don't think represented in depth as much in your piece is lawmakers. And I did want to dwell on that a little bit before we go to kind of the, the question of how your story was received. I mean, another way to describe big disinfo, as Evelyn said, is the disinformation industrial complex. And I was thinking as I read your piece that, of course, in the speech where he coins the term military industrial complex, Eisenhower is talking about the relationship between government and academia and the defense industry. So how much of a role, in your view, is government playing in big disinfo? How does it fit into this picture? I think that depends on which part of the government you're talking about, on who is who holds power, and on the political climate itself. A couple months ago, the Biden administration released the first ever national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which is a problem. It's, you know, domestic terrorism, I think there was, maybe it was Pew, it was a recent study that showed that uh, Americans now view it as a bigger problem than, you know, foreign extremism. One of its planks is countering the polarization often fueled by disinformation, misinformation, and dangerous conspiracy theories online. And this, this report, and I think it's important for like people who, you know, hate the January 6th people who think they're everything wrong with America, and in many ways they are. I think it's important to know that this report warned not just of right-wing militias and incels, you know, the kind of people who did the abominable crime in New Zealand and who tried to kidnap, you know, the governor of Michigan, but anti-capitalist, environmental and, and anti-rights activists too. And, and now you have to start thinking about like occupied type people, you know, would they be targeted by this kind of political regime? Like, I think that's a question that's worth asking. And so I think to the extent that politicians certainly the sort of center center of the democratic party wants to project a kind of middle road order stability return to normalcy yeah i mean i do think it's in their incentive to kind of 
both sides, the disinformation question. And a lot of my piece is about how calling something disinformation or propaganda is almost always political and has a political perspective, has political stakes. In terms of like specific policy questions, I'm not expert enough to say. I don't think there's any legislation like being proposed on disinformation right now, but certainly it's something that democratic politicians love to flog uh, Facebook on like when they when they need to. Okay, so let's move to the meta narrative, the story about the story a little bit. Something that you were critiquing in the piece as we were just talking about a little earlier is a sense of some lack of self-reflection and awareness on parts of the media and one thing I found a little bit funny in the reaction to your story was there was this element of everyone tweeting oh thank goodness someone has said this those people in the field are terrible you know it's been annoying me too and I think I was one of those people like Mm -hmm. I agree with a lot of your points but I also Mm -hmm. feel nervous about making them a lot of the time and you know you've Mm -hmm. quoted kindly from my piece where I sometimes just can't stop myself but it also does feel slightly unwise for me to be taking shots at my entire field before I even have a job and I am in this field I write and talk about disinformation Mm -hmm. I am I co-host a podcast about it Mm -hmm. Um, we're not exactly raking in the dough here but it has definitely Mm -hmm. been good for my career to do this Mm -hmm. Um, and you Mm -hmm. talked a bit about how you also were writing about this stuff before you uh, went to your Neiman fellowship and so Mm -hmm. I mean I I don't want to make this about me and ask if you you think I'm a hypocrite, but that sort of broader dynamic about perhaps some of the targets of your piece responding to it like they weren't the targets of your piece. Did you sort of see that? And how did you feel about that? Well, first of all, as a journalist, I do have just a kind of structural freedom and uh, kind of an ability to move from story to story in a way that doesn't have to be coherent isn't the right word, but like it's just not the same as being in academia. So I would bracket it with that. In terms of people's reactions, that question might be better placed to someone like Daniel Kreese, who understands better, you know, how funding, you know, sort of works. I mean, I've heard from a lot of academics sort of anecdotally about situations like that, but I, I don't explicitly report on it in the in the piece. I think a lot of the people, including myself, who have reported on sort of like bad content online are like aware on some level about these limitations and we're happy that I wrote this story. And so I don't necessarily choose to view it as ass covering. I do choose to view it as we all, well, not all of us, but many of us work in institutions. Those institutions have prerogatives that are not you know, necessarily the same as the people who work for them. A lot of things happen. A lot of, you know, the the sort of fancy term from STS is co-production. I mean, you know, when knowledge gets made, the sort of histories of institutions and the people who work for them sort of all come together. And and that is embedded in, God, this is so, I just, this is so academic sounding. Our audience is here for the wonkiness. Go for it. This is great. Yeah. Basically, I don't want to just sit, like, I don't think it's just ass covering when people were like, oh, yeah, like, I, you know, those, those people are the idiots. I mean, I think maybe this is a streak that is running through some of this work. You know, I don't want to do a, a huge mea culpa because in my own work, I have not foregrounded that critique. I have talked about radicalization online 
And frankly, I think some of my hesitancy about embracing the disinformation critique comes from the research on countering violent extremism, which is complicated and not at all as straightforward as I think. Uh, I mean, this goes to war on terror stuff, but not to sound like Glenn Greenwald, as people would maybe believe in popular culture. So I think it's just a tendency. It's a tendency to be aware of. And, you know, again, to go back to Quinta's question, I wanted to shake people a little bit and say, like, this is a thing that's running through all of this work. Like, let's make sure we're aware of it. And let's not do the platforms themselves favors in the work itself. I do think it is funny the way you've you've talked about the piece that uh, it sounds like, you know, you had so many people reach out to you and say, thank God somebody is is finally saying this. Um, but I do want to talk about the the pushback to your piece, which I assume you you knew was inevitable. Can you describe sort of what the general contours of the pushback were and what you thought the most compelling points were? I mean, I will say one of the, the most compelling counter arguments that I saw was from Dean Freeland at UNC who wrote, um, and I thought this was a, a pretty nice little phrase, uh, some of us are just trying to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> um, so I'm curious what, what you made of that and the other counter arguments. My stance about the way that social platforms are affecting Americans currently is humility. I don't have the answers. And I'm highly skeptical of people who claim to have all the answers. What the disinformation frame is, in its sort of strongest instance, is a one-size-fits-all answer about why people behave they do that entirely rests on novel media phenomenon. So that critique, and I'd have to read the whole thing, I'm highly sympathetic to. I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on, too. Now, does propaganda studies, disinformation studies, does this discipline have important contributions to make? Yeah, of course. And my piece doesn't claim that it that they don't. What I'm asking for is that this discipline, that this framework takes on board some better, more sophisticated degree of self-reflection. If the critique of my piece is, this is overly harsh on people who are basically in completely novel territory, trying their best. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I think one of the issues that sort of plagues our public life in general is explanationism, you know, like this thing happened because of why. And, you know, you can see this. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the attempts to explain January 6th, that if we get the exact right uh, and I saw this flare up on Twitter last night about the content transparency. If we get the exact right content transparency, and if we find the, the, you know, the one phone call or the one Facebook messaging group, we will be able to definitively say why people storm the Capitol. And maybe these are extremely complicated phenomena, which is not to say we need to throw our hands up at them. We need to judge them and say, this is bad and we need to stop it. But let's not say it's because, well, these people were exposed to the following meme for the you know this certain amount of time, which, frankly, I think is the way some of the conversation was headed. So uh, without knowing that specific critique, I'm sympathetic to it. And my response to it would be, let's be aware of the pitfalls of 
of this kind of worldview. So in a fun twist, um, you became a pawn in another big controversy around content moderation that happened in the last few weeks, which is this dust up around a Facebook transparency report about the content that gets the most views on its platform. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that Facebook tried to bury an earlier version that was less complimentary to Facebook because it showed yep. that misinformation was more prominent on the platform. And as I mentioned earlier, some of it came from articles in, in mainstream media that were just reporting on things that were unknown at the time or you know misrepresented or or sort of used out of context. Um, yeah. And then there was this big question about, well, what should platforms do with mainstream articles when th those are supposed to be the gatekeepers? Do we want the gatekeepers to gatekeep the gatekeepers, etc.? Yeah. And Andy Stone, a Facebook spokesperson, um, was responding to this criticism and when they were releasing the, that internal report ultimately. And they and you get this shout out in his Twitter thread that says, um, Joe Bernstein makes this point more articulately than I ever could, saying the terms misinformation and disinformation are tossed around so casually as to be almost meaningless beyond being simply jargon for things I disagree with, which is what we were talking about earlier. I have also had the questionable privilege of having my work referred to by Facebook comms mm -hmm. uh, once twice and it's hard because if you say anything that pushes back on this dominant narrative as you were uh, you get labeled by some as platform apologia right like if you don't mm -hmm. say something that's like the platforms are the worst and they're destroying everything we hold dear and it's the end of democracy you know it's like can we have a bit more nuance um sometimes mm -hmm. there there is an element of this discourse that isn't sort of ready for that I have felt and that's where that sort of fear comes from in sort of saying that because I don't mm -hmm. want to be labeled as platform apology and that's no. not what I see myself doing I think we have very real problems here I'm just yes. not sure that this is the way of solving it um so I'm yes. curious like were you surprised by becoming a, a, a key figure in this debate as well right. like, how did you feel about that what was your reaction to that okay I yes I was very afraid of that when I wrote the piece I am not a platform apologist the platforms are bad actors. They are no better, no worse than any other rapacious corporate giant. They have an enormous amount of power. Um, they're poorly understood still. That is all true. One thing I want to say before I get to the specific incident is one of the things I wanted to do in this story is offer a way of criticizing the platforms that is not just that they have bad content, which is that maybe their content is worthless. And that was completely ignored, of course, by the Facebook flack. But Tim Wong's book, which I draw upon significantly, and then some other news clips that I put in the story, you know, there's so much we don't know about Facebook's ad model that it essentially may be completely overstated and itself may be kind of a, an illusion of sorts. And to me, this is a much more devastating criticism of Facebook than like sometimes their content is bad for democracy. Like your company may actually be worthless to me is like maybe a generative, to use another academic term, uh, way in if you don't like the platforms, which I don't. So let me start by saying that. This specific flack, who I have nothing personally against, selectively quoted my piece. Uh, he quoted a part of it that, you know, I mean, it's in the piece because I think it's true. My response to it, uh, was basically to politely say, go f yourself, because this is a case in which these very, very sort of scientific sounding, definitional, what I have heard called like lexical issues with disinformation and misinformation, allow Facebook and their ilk to say, these are impossible to define, and so we're not going to do it. 
And so I do think he was being a flack. He was doing his job. Uh, and what I tried to say is basically like bad or inconsistent definitions of misinformation and disinformation let flax do their job. Flax like ambiguity. They like space to twist the truth. And and that's sort of what I think was going on there. So I'm curious how you see your own work going forward now. You know, you were talking about how you're a journalist, uh, a senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed, and you took this year out to do the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard and sort of think more deeply about these issues. And that's what, you know, bad news is a product of that time. And so I'm curious what you, are you if you're going back to being a reporter, how you see this, you know, self-reflective time influencing how you cover technology going forward. I am really interested in more granular stories about the way that tech and platforms are reshaping the way people interact with the world. And a story that I was so, so jealous of that I just, I wish I'd written it. It was in the Times, I want to say a month ago by, um, she's actually an academic, uh, Linda Kinsler. It was about essentially engineers in Silicon Valley who are working on AI, who are also believers, you know, devout Christians and how they're reckoning with that, with sort of those questions. I'm like, I'm way, way now more interested in smaller, smaller scale, smaller bore stories that maybe get at bigger issues than starting with these sort of enormous. And and I, I don't think, I mean, I want to give myself some credit. I don't think my work has really done that in the past, but I've always been a narrative feature writer. I will continue to be a narrative feature writer. And when I get really cranky about something, maybe once in a while, I'll write something like this. Yeah. I mean, my, my method or the thing that has always excited me about journalism is going from the specific to the general. And I think going even more specific and and maybe that's a way of saying like, I don't have answers. Certainly, I'm not a I'm not a, a an attorney or a policy person. I find what you know they do fascinating, um, and I think there's always going to be really interesting stories around this area. I have no interest in doing, you know, the kind of Facebook is violating its own rules stories. God bless the people who do them, but it's too frustrating, and I really want to focus on on these kind of smaller bore, which is not to say smaller stakes, but smaller bore sort of closer and to sort of maybe bring it back to something I talked about earlier, the kind of focus on individual cases rather than sort of these, these big like meta narratives about the way the internet affects everyone, you know? Thank goodness. I, I really, uh, something that frustrates me no end, and I've just written like a 76 page article, I was so frustrated, um, is these, these stories that about individual posts that violate Facebook's rules or YouTube's rules or Twitter's rules, because perfect content moderation is impossible at scale. Mm-hmm. At the scale that these platforms operate, we are never going to have perfect enforcement of their rules. And so these stories could be written 
till the end of time. Uh, it will right. always be possible to find individual stories of, of a breach of the rules. And so a much right. more productive conversation is going to be, and, and these, I mean, they're full credit to, there's a lot of reporters that do cover this, is like, what are the systems, what are the incentives that are producing these kinds of errors? You know, what are the error rates and what side of the line are platforms erring on rather than, oh, found one, gotcha. Um, buried in some Facebook group, I have found, you know, this post and I've looked at their rules and it, it, it doesn't match up, but um, I just needed to get that off my chest. No, I mean, uh, Peter Kafka calls that, or he may not have come up with this, but like hall monitor reporting, it's not even a good, like, it's not a good use of reporters time. Yet another place where sort of we agree, but I th- I think to me, this story is the labor story, which, you know, this is, um, this is Casey Newton's story, but like the people who actually have to make these decisions, you know, the way the people have to do this on a daily basis are treated is a way more important story than like whether or not it's be- they're being consistently important. So to close out, I wanted to ask how you see big disinfo sort of going forward. You identified and critiqued an industrial complex. Like, do you think it changes? How do you see it evolving, especially, you know, drawing on what you might have learned from your studies of these cycles in previous eras? Is there any way to change how this system works? So in the medium, short to medium term, I just think it's going to become us like less of a foregrounded issue for the political reasons that Evelyn has written about in the long term. The, <laughs> there was a paper published yesterday or shared yesterday, I don't know if it was published yesterday, that was about the effect of Father Coughlin's, and you know, I'm referring to the conservative, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-red, or you know, anti-communist radio preacher, Detroit radio preacher from the 1940s, his effect on Roosevelt's vote share, and I can't remember which election it was. And so like political science is like just getting to that uh, media effect. To say to state that more clearly, a political scientist just eighty years later has done a paper on how much listening to Father Coughlin affected uh, someone's propensity to vote for FDR, and so I think this is an explosion of interesting stories and theories about the way people relate to the world through media and. So to that extent, I think we're at the beginning of like a big bang. And, you know, after we're dead, maybe someone is going to publish like the real paper on someone reading Facebook, certain Facebook memes and whether or not that influenced them to show up on January 6th or like believe that ivermectin, you know, cures COVID or like, again, humility. I know it's the job of journalism to tell the first draft of history, but my answer is in the long term. I think what we think of as disinformation is going to be an unbelievably rich source of understanding about how humans make meaning about the world. All right. On that note, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shatu. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. 
please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com lawfare. You'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly Lawfare Live events, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening.